Well, welcome to another edition of Toby Haydock's Who's Round, and it's interviews like this that give me a real feeling of job satisfaction. I'm on the telephone to Canada with a gentleman who I have to say, I'm not just saying it because I'm talking to him, uh, gives one of my favourite performances in the whole of Doctor Who. So I'm going to ask him to introduce himself and tell me uh, why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Oh, hello, uh, everyone. My name's Henry Wolfe, and I was lucky enough to play the collector in an episode of Doctor Who called The Sunmakers. You know, it was not just one episode, but... It took two or three programs to run, and it was very, very enjoyable. And uh, I hope suitably sinister. He wasn't a very nice fellow. And I had a bald wig, so I looked completely bald. I was completely sinister and went around in an electric motorized chair, which was terrific fun to rehearse in, because I said, um, look, I need time to rehearse in this. So there was a huge BBC rehearsal room for Doctor Who, and I was there early in the morning, and I was allowed to tootle around in this electric chair. It was terrific fun. It's it's a marvellously alien performance. He's not just nasty, but you actually go to a lot of effort to make him sort of, I don't know if it's reptilian or leech-like, you know, with with your voice and yeah, your I movements. Totally describes it. It's very easy, because some people, I'm sure, would describe my real persona as very similar to that. Oh, well, half of my brief experience, you're nothing but charming. Um, so, and, and I know for a fact and um, that, that Tom Baker um, was, uh, uh, has huge admiration for your performance. And, Did he really? Uh, I didn't know that, because I had a huge admiration for his. Although he was terrific. Does it, does a marvellous Doctor Who. You know how they vary. And he was one of my favourites. There's, there's a marvellous moment where he's talking to you and you sort of finger his curly hair rather um, a, 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 as if you're envious of him because your character is so bald. And it's a lovely touch. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I, I was totally lucky, you know, because um, I had some excellent wig makers who made the bald wig and it just fitted perfectly, wonderfully. <laughs> I thought... Uh, Tom Baker's one of the best of the Doctor Who's, you know, and I've watched them from the very beginning, you know, um, and I've always liked them. They're terrific. And I remember I was in a, a first night in London, and there were all kinds of people there, and all kinds of important people, but the people who attracted my attention most were a small group of Doctor Who, um, you know, aficionados, fans who wanted my autograph. They weren't particularly interested in the first night or the important people. What mattered to them was not me so much as my connection with this great series, which has kept, uh, you know, us all so happy over the years. But everybody remembers Doctor Who. It's a standout in one's career. You know, in 50 years, nearly 60 years acting, that's one of the great standout experiences. Not just because of the electric chair, because it was a, the Sunmakers, as that particular episode was called, was a marvellous parable 
about materialism, actually about capitalism. I'm surprised it wasn't banned because it had a sort of socio-political uh, stance to it that it um, carried to a logical conclusion the strange contradiction in capitalism about we must have ever-abundant growth. Growth is what we need in a planet which has finite resources, which is a kind of contradiction, really. If you're going to run out of resources, what happens to your endless growth? So I think the writer, whose name escapes me at this moment, he deserves great credit, wrote a very sort of sinister, very funny, but very true sort of uh, socio-political statement. You know, and I'm sure someone would be able to write a rebuttal of that, sort of as saying, oh, no, no, we have a Dr. Spooser is here, in which the, um, <laughs> the proprietors of the planet, or whatever one would call them, are all devout socialists, something like that. There we are. Well, he's, yes, it's always been it's best when it's reflected the times. The writer was a man called Robert Holmes who had just had a massive tax bill and I think was cross. And, uh... oh, that's very funny. <laughs> Don't you agree, wrote a terrific little episode there? Absolutely, and it's Louise Jameson who played the companion Leela. It's her favourite story as well, for that very reason. Um, is that right, for the same reason? Yeah, that it's about something and, and about contemporary concerns and is using an adventure story to tell, to, 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 to explore ideas. But, but I thought she was a terrific uh, performer too, one of the very best. Well, and another, and, and, and many of your scenes are with a marvellous actor, Richard Leach, where you sort of he, he trades obsequy with you and, and sort of spends That's the whole right. thing. He was very good. Oh, your magnificence, your eminence, all those sort of hyperboles. He was very good at that. Marvellous performance. Do you remember the um, the director, Pennant Roberts, and, and how you came to be Very in Doctor Who? He was a charming fella. I wonder what happened to him. Uh, he, he passed away a couple of years ago. Did he really? Yes, he had. Oh, I hope at a goodly age. Well, he had. He had. He was fighting cancer, sadly. So he was. He was comparatively young, only in his early seventies, I think. Oh, uh, what a charming chap he was. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. He was very nice. So would you have, I mean, was that a part you'd have um, just been offered, uh, Henry, or would you have uh, gone in and, and met them and, and discussed the role? How would you have got a part like that at that point in your career on, on, for the BBC? Oh, they just wanted someone of a reptilian appearance. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I can't remember, I just got offered it. And they must have known, seen me about a bit, you see, because although London's a big place, the theatre and television world isn't necessarily a very big world, you know. Sure. What? So I think they'd probably seen me in a few things. And someone, they said, we wanted someone who can drive a, an electric chair and, <laughs> you know, has a reptilian subtext to his performances. <laughs> you know, I, you know, a moment I really loved is when my character... Uh, having, you know, everything, been defeated on all fronts, disappears, humiliatingly enough, down a sinkhole. Yes. He just gets smaller and smaller and smaller and disappears with a gurgle. Yes, down the plug hole. It's, I mean, it's, it's just so full of wonderful moments like that. I love the way, I don't know if you remember how, when you get a computer readout 
you don't read it like you or I would, which is be far away from it and read it. You go up very close to it and your eyes, uh, you know, almost, you're almost, your nose is almost touching the paper. Uh, That's right. And, and, it, and it's full of those moments that make him not just um, a, a bad guy, but very much this sort of alien inhabiting a humanoid form. Yes, yes. That's right. It was very cleverly written. Very, very cleverly written. And uh, <laughs> I do enjoy watching it. And my, my grandchildren like watching it now. And they, they don't look at me too differently. <laughs> because by this time, they're, it, they accept the eccentricity of an actor's uh, personality. <laughs> but they like Doctor. They like that uh, episode of Doctor Who. Well, let's let's f- find out how how you got got to be there. So, what what, what was your what background? I know you were um, friends with Harold Pinter from a young age. So, can you t- talk to me about you know how you broke into the business and and what inspired you to to become? Well, it was Harold actually. It was Harold. He was working with one of the last of the actor managers. And for those who don't know what that term means, it means for hundreds oh hundreds of years really, and really all over Europe. There was an actor manager would be the leading actor in a company and he would own the company, take all the profits and all the losses and assemble a company around him and almost always toured whatever country it was, you know, England or Germany or Italy or France. And of course, there were slight variations in the way actor managers express themselves in the different countries. But in England and Ireland, they were very well established for hundreds of years, you know, two, three hundred years after the Restoration, one would think. And even in Elizabethan times, they would tour. You know, Elizabethan companies would sometimes tour Germany in plays in English. The Germans loved Shakespeare so much way back then. So English actors were known at the continent. But the kind of plays we did, we did... My very first job, Harold had been in Annie McMaster's company in Ireland. And he had my first job because he'd been a very successful actor when he was at high school. And he went to RADA, but didn't like it very much, so he dropped out and he used to go and watch cricket at Lord's. But then he went to the Central School of Drama. And when he graduated, one of his very first jobs was to tour Ireland with... Mac has recorded him. He was a great actor, especially in Othello and uh, The Merchant of Venice. He was a wonderful Shylock. I played Lancelot Gobbo with him. And he was a marvelously generous actor. When I was playing Lancelot Gobbo, he'd say, do what you like behind my back, lad. Everybody laugh. It's worth half a crown. Whereas <laughs> I can think of other distinguished actor managers who would say, Never come closer than three feet of me, never upstage me, and never touch me. That was a rather superfluous command, the last one, never touch me, because if you're standing three feet away, you'd have to have elastic arms. But anyway, I joined the master, and we did eight different Shakespeare plays a week, on top of which we did, we were in Ireland on a, a Sunday, we would do... Um, in Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, it, we would do a thriller, a murder mystery on Sundays, you see, when uh, things were much more light-hearted. And uh, they, the Irish are wonderful audiences. They have a wonderful gift for language, so that if one uh, 
went to a village or a small town where people, we've been told, were sort of functionally illiterate, you know, it's reading and writing. Nevertheless, it meant really, in Irish terms, that their natural gift for language, both speaking it and listening to it, had been unimpaired by education. And they were a wonderful audience. I remember an Irishman saying to me, well, do you see, the murder mystery was all very well, sir, but we couldn't understand the uh, stabbings and shootings and the goings-on and the language, sir. You see, the thing is, we always used to do Hamlet in this village. And he said, the thing is, sir, we can understand the language in Hamlet, sir. Oh, we can. And then he says something quite remarkable I've never forgotten. He said, Hamlet, are oh, yes, sir. He said, haven't we all got young fellows like that at home? I thought that was a remarkable <laughs> thing to say. So I started there. And Harold, later on, I directed his, I just directed his first play, got him to write his first play. I shouldn't be. Sounds rather boasty to say that, but I'm jolly glad I did. I was at Bristol University. I was at the uh, drama department. And I persuaded them to put it on, really, because I said it wouldn't cost anything. I said I knew their budget was spent. And for that year, on beautiful productions by beautiful people. So I said, you know, this play... It's going to cost one and ninepence, which that was the old money, which is the equivalent of about, um, oh, 75 pence, I think. And we did it uh, for that, and it went down very well. And uh, that was Harold Stark. He wrote it in two days, The Room. And, you know, before he died, in about, oh, it was about um, 10 years ago now, we did a, a reproduction of The Room. And I played the same part, Mr. Kidd. That was his first play, and we did his last play. It was a double bill, two one-actors. The Room, his first play, and Celebration, his last play. And so it was, and we took it to New York, and it went down rather well there. And um, so that was, that was fun, and I knew Harold for 60 years, and I've always been grateful to him for pushing me into the theatre. You know. He didn't push me. He just said, this is what it's like. And his letters from Ireland are just wonderful. If anybody wants to read his letters to me or to his other friends, Mick, Mick Goldstein and others, go to the British Library. The archives have got them. And so that's how I started, you see. Then I went, I was terribly lucky in my career. I went almost straight away into a production directed by Orson Welles. Uh, with Laurence Olivier in it, a production of a, what was known as avant-garde play then by Ionesco, the Romanian writer, <coughs> sorry, playwright, and called Rhinoceros. And Olivier played the uh, leading man by Orange. It was very distinguished. And he had a terrific, dramatic, uh, real-life life, as well as his life on stage, because... Um, Olivier was getting divorced then from that wonderful actress, Vivian Lee, marrying the splendid Joan Plowright. You know, he was still acting away. And uh, there was a great brouhaha, and we had to go and rehearse in church halls away from the actual theatre. So I was terribly lucky, went into the West End uh, almost straight away. Before that, I'd been in uh, a couple of plays for Awesome, for Awesome Wells. Uh, Chimes at Midnight, an adaptation of Henry IV, Part One and Two. 
Um, he was a great genius, actually, Orson Welles, to work with. Uh, he knew so much. He was a marvellous actor, too. So I've been awfully lucky, really. Well, and I was really almost pre-television when I started, started in 1957. There wasn't that much television going on. But um, I've been very lucky. Having, I've acted in all kinds of plays and films and things. But the, uh, I, I've always been very lucky, really, in acting rather good plays. Well, indeed. And uh, in fact, I acted in one of Harold's plays at the, at the National just about... Um, Ten years ago, uh, the the hot house. So I will remember the hot house because Harold had written his first full length full length play. We did his first play, his one act play, The Room. Then he did uh, wrote the birthday party. I think it's a wonderful play, but it, the critics were very frightened of it because it was completely different from any other play in 1957. They were frightened of it. They did their best to kill off Pinter. They gave him the most terrible reviews I've ever seen. Quite excessively bad reviews. But one splendid critic, Harold Hobson, in the Sunday Times said, this new man is a genius and we should foster him. And he prevailed. And Harold became, as you know, famous and, and so forth. Then at the time, when he got these terrible reviews, he said to me, you know, Henry, they can all go jump in the lake. I've just written another full-length play. If they don't like it, they can lump it. And then I said to him sometime later, what happened to the new full-length play? He said, I don't think it's quite good enough. I'm going to put it away. It showed a great strength of character. But then years later, oh, 30, 40 years later, it was produced at the National. And I had a part in it. And it was such a pleasure that the critics were proved wrong. And uh, you worked with Peter Brook as well, didn't you, on the Marat Sard? So, um, yes, we did. And, and she, my wife is a wonderful actress, Susan Williamson, and she'd worked with Peter Brook in his very avant-garde, in those days, stunningly avant-garde uh, productions of the Theatre of Cruelty and Jean Genet. Jean Genet's uh, The Screens, which was uh, French, both French derived, you know, the theatre of cruelty and uh, from the French theatre and dear old uh, The Screens by Jean Genet and she was a wonderful actress and by these experiences of avant-garde theatre she was quite prepared for the avant-garde quality of the play I met her in called the the Marassade which was based on, you know, Dessard, the famous the man who in, the word sadist is right. Yes, the, the Marquis de so Sade, yeah. His writings were so cruel and excessive and sexually explicit that he was imprisoned in the Bastille. And when the Bastille in 1789 finally liberated you know, the great royalist prison, I think there were only six or possibly only two prisoners in it. And the Marquis de Sade was in one of them. And uh, this perverse aristocrat became against his will, in a way, a hero of the French Revolution. But the funny thing was, this man is... The cruelty in his books are quite merciless. Nevertheless, um, he could never bring himself to pronounce a death sentence, ever, although the French Revolutionary chaps wanted him to, and they got fed up with him, didn't know what to do with him, couldn't very well guillotine him. 
So they declared him insane and put him in a lunatic asylum at Charenton, which is still there, just outside Paris. And he used to write plays for the inmates, for the insane inmates. And they would play them sometimes, and the quality, as they call them, would come out from Paris to, to watch them. And uh, the play we were in, the Marassad, was as had Dessard in it as a character, speaking to Marat, the famous revolutionary who was killed in his bath by Charlotte Corday. She knocked on his door three times and then came in and stabbed him. And uh, my wife played his nurse. And the excellent actress Glenda Jackson played um, Charlotte Corday and she later became a Labour MP and she only retired last year. You yes. know, early this year. Yes, indeed. I mean, I've, I've, I wonder you worked with so many fine actors and classical actors. Um, who who are the actors that uh, you know? Working with them, looking at their work, you 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 admired or learnt from the most? Would you say? Well, you see, Olivier was a brilliant stylist of his own. You know, he was he was just a marvelous performer and absolutely invented techniques and so forth. But one of my wife and my own great favorites in the world almost is his contemporary, Olivier's contemporary, Sir Ralph Richardson, mm. who had this extraordinary inner life. And uh, whatever he did, whatever he said, whether it was what, in a film, or uh, they both made lots of films, Olivier and Richardson, and of course, they ran were the two leads in, the, I think, the greatest repertory season I've ever seen. It was at the St. James's, I think, and uh, it was a wonderful season, or about three or four, maybe five seasons, which they alternated the leads. And uh, it was just at the end of the war and into the 1950s. Superb theatre. But Ralph Richardson had this extraordinary inner life. Now, I don't believe with the uh, dear old Stanislavski chaps, uh, the North Americans particularly, who believe you can't approach a part except from within the character. I think there's all kinds of ways to approach a part. Olivia, I think, always approached it from the outside in and was, gave marvellous performances, but of a very different nature to Richardson's, who was naturally intuitive. And I have to say, that's what took me into the theatre, seeing a production in one of their repertory theatres. It was at the Albury Theatre, as it is now. In those days, we called it the New Theatre. And it was during a very heavy air raid in February 1945. And in those days, the Germans weren't using bombers on London. They were using uh, automatic weapons. You know, pilotless planes, the V-1. The V stands for, for something like the Geltenschwang. I can't pronounce it correctly. It means revenge weapon. Revenge for the Allied air raids on German cities, you see. And it was very much like what they call um, one of those um, missiles that they have on um, uh, lots of U.S. Navy ships. They're a little uh, flying bomb, really. It had a little, the V-1, it was a little plane. It had a little tiny ramjet engine at the back, no pilot. had a 2,000-pound bomb uh, in the front. And the engine was timed to cut out over a specific target, usually in London. And then the V2, of course, the other... 
60-foot-long rocket with another 2,000-pound warhead. And they bombed, they used hundreds and hundreds of them on London and on Antwerp, which at that time was the huge port supporting the Allied invasion of Normandy, which would take place in June the 6th, 1944. Oddly enough, both these missiles, the started uh, arriving in England just about D-Day, about June the 6th, June the 14th. And I watched Arms on the Man during a very heavy uh, combined rocket and pilotless plane attack. We used to call the pilotless planes buzz bombs because their ramjet went in, off intermittently like a buzz. Boop, 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 boop. When you stopped hearing that boop, 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 it meant the air craft engine that cut out is going to dive into the ground, usually on top of you, it felt like. But anyway, I was in this play watching Arms on the Man and Ralph Richardson by Bernard Shaw. And there's a wonderful thing at the end of the war, a very bitter war, February 1945, I mean, the war ended in May, you see, 45. The British were putting on a play by Bernard Shaw that mocked war. It was a comedy. It was the chocolate soldier was the lead. He was given the name Bluntschley and beautifully played by Ralph Richardson. And Olivier also beautifully played and Sergius Saranoff, who epitomized the warrior. And his famous line was, I never apologize. But before he could get the lines out very often, a rocket or a buzz bomb would explode. And I remember there's a giant chandelier, I think this still is, over the stalls in the new theatre, the Albury Theatre as it is today, and the huge chandelier, the, the theatre would shake with the explosion and the plaster would fall and this chandelier would sweep from side to side over the people in the stores and all the 750 people in the audience and all the actors and stagehands and everybody else were risking their lives, but never mind, we crowded into the theatre we couldn't even get a seat. We sat on the stairs, my parents and myself, my brother. And it was made ordinary life look awfully dull. And that's what I think made me go into the theatre, because it was life to the power of 26. It was so exciting, these explosions and the plaster falling, the Olivier waiting to deliver his famous line until the explosion, uh, the sounds of it had faded and the plaster was still falling. I never apologise, he would say. Jolly exciting stuff. <laughs> well, because um, uh, as well as this sort of classical um, uh, theatre that you're steeped in, you also um, have worked with some of the great comedians and were the sort of go-to character man, Frost's Weekly, uh, Rutland Weekend Television with, with Eric oh, Sykes. Yes. And so oh, Rutland Weekend Television was so much fun and Eric Idle was so talented. Such a talented fellow. It was just after Monty Python, you see. John Cleese went off and did Forty Towers, and Eric Idle did Rutland Weekend Television. So, yes, I got the chance to work with quite a few comedians. Now, I have to tell you something about comedians. Lots of them, like Eric Idle, are terribly nice. But I have, early on, I'd work as a feed for some comics, and they sometimes, you know, touring the provinces... They weren't the very top of the list. So if they didn't get a laugh, this particular comedian would turn and say, you've moved during my line. That's why I didn't get the laugh. So it's quite a good experience, you know. 
another very famous comedian said to me after my audition, I'm the funny man round here. Never you forget that if you work with me. So uh, comedians can vary quite a lot. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, well, what about, I mean, they weren't comedians. They were both fine character actors, but in a in a comedy that's endured and in which you play a marvellous part, of course, Steptoe and Son. Well, I'm jolly lucky there. They were wonderful to work with and weren't they terrific? Wilfred Bramble and, um, and what, you know, what not. Harry H. Cor- uh, Harry H. Corbett. Harry H. Corbett. They were just terrific. And I was very lucky because I was in a, a movie episode in which I played one of my favourite characters, Frankie Barrow, the gangster. And then I was in uh, one, I think, maybe two, I'm not sure, of the uh, ordinary series, which the seven stepped awry, in which uh, Wilfred Bramble had joined a karate class. So Frankie Barrow, my character, and his gang raided their house. But waiting for them was this karate class of sort of geriatrics, people in their 70s, 80s and 90s, who, of course, were young karate people dressed up as old men. And there's a wonderful battle in the Seven Step Terai in which the Frankie Barrow and his gang are totally defeated by the old men, the actors who look like old men. It's marvellous. And I remember, you know how they use, in England, or used to, a two-pronged fork to pick up hay during the haymaking season? Yeah. Well... At one point, they pinioned my neck to the wall with a two-pong thing going in very fast. It looks pretty scary in the, in the on the television when you see it, but actually, they filmed it backwards, you see. So they had it stuck in and then pulled it out very quickly and then shot it the other way around, then played it the other way around, and it looked as if it was going in terribly fast. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm conscious that I'm about to exceed the half hour of yours I promised to take up. No, so that's I'd, right. Go ahead. I, I'd like, there, there are a couple of things I would I'd like to... Well, there's the, 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 that's very kind oh, of you. Up. You go ahead. No, thank you. Um, the movies, um, what movies stick out? I mean, Gorky Park, Michael Apted and Galileo, Joseph Losey. Um, did, did you enjoy working on film? Obviously, film to electronic television is a very, very different system. Do you have a it preference? Is, uh, I, I tell you, the, I like doing the film of the Marassad, you see because it was very different from the play. And at the very end of the film and the play, the whole set was set fire to, and we had to get the shots in, or it was disappearing in smoke. Terribly exciting, and the cameraman would sometimes fall into one of the baths in the state, in the film set, and then Peter Brook would snatch up the camera before it collapsed. That was, there were several cameras working, you see, and walk around with it handheld. So I enjoyed that very much. And Gorky Park was a lot of fun. We had to, we were supposed to shoot it in Finland because it's set in Russia, but most of the surviving imperial era uh, Russian architecture is actually in Finland before it broke away from Tsarist Russia. So, or did they break away after the revolution? I can't remember. But um, so we shot it in Helsinki and oddly enough, we ran out of snow. <laughs> we had to move to Sweden to finish the movie. That was a lot of fun. And Michael Apted's a very, very good, very good director. He was, he was uh, just very, very good. 
Well, the worlds of film and comedy greats uh, collide with spectacular results in The Bed Sitting Room, which must be one of the strangest films ever made. <laughs> it was. I got half my face blown off. They put too much explosive. I was playing the electrician for the whole of the world. A genera- it was a post-Holocaust sort of film, so the world has been more or less destroyed. And Ralph Richardson was in it, and a wonderful actors, Dudley Moore and Peter Cook. And Kenneth Williams. You know, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore um, wrote me into a movie, The Hound of the Baskervilles, which actually, for various reasons, never won an award. Quite well, enough said about that. But I played Dudley Moore's double. And I pointed out, because I look a bit like him, you see, and I pointed out they can save a lot of money by just shooting him from a different angle, you know. But I said, no, no, we're writing a new scene. So I waited in a stable, just behind an enormous horse. I was really frightened in case the horse got nervous and kicked out. Then I went in, dressed exactly as Dudley Moore, and uh, he was playing Dr. Watson in a Welsh accent, you see. And he said, well, I'd like to send a telegram, please. And he got through the sentence. Just at the end, he realized that the chap he was talking to looked exactly like him. And I took no notice of it and replied in sort of that cunning West Country way. And how can I help you, sir? In a kind of voice that made you distrustful. Immediately you heard it. So we had a lot of fun doing that. But uh, I've been very lucky about the different sort of comedies and things I've been in. Really lucky. Well, and cults as well, if you count the Rocky Horror... Uh, oh, yes, experience. the horror. That's remained a cult film. I went to a, the sort of 40th anniversary showing of the movie at the Albert Hall uh, in early in 2014, last year. And it was so lovely to watch it there and um, to watch, you know, some of the actors. And um, it was a slightly longer version, I think. And my wife does it once saw in... Um, one sees actually in the movies it was very good I loved rehearsing the time warp that was <laughs> that was just wonderful wonderful fun really and can you understand got, can you understand well, it's why it's become this because it's it's grown into such a phenomenon quite literally unlike anything else isn't it odd you know, partly because of the acting I thought the acting is just wonderfully sinister and funny and true. You know, they play it truly for real. And the writing was very good. You know, Riff Raff. Um, R- uh, R- R- Richard R- O'Brien, yeah. Yeah, Richard O'Brien. You know, and, and so it was very well acted, very well acted. Patricia Quinn, Magenta, she was a friend of ours from long before. But you know, I used to be known as the chap who was in the avant-garde a great deal. So... If I felt, you know, there was something interesting coming up, it would often be in a tiny theatre above a pub or something. And uh, then I was in uh, one of the best theatres I ever worked with, time and again, really, was with the Royal Court Theatre, when it was run by Bill Gaskill and uh, his clever assistants, Nicholas Wright and Peter Gill, just the most wonderful productions in London at the time. You know, I was the first chap, I shouldn't say this, to play Gally Gay in Bertolt Brecht's Man is Man, 
the first chap in England to do it. It was so interesting to do that. And I've got a great friend, a brilliant writer called Hethcote Williams. And he wrote a play in our cupboard. He said, I've got nowhere to stay. Can you put me up? I said, well, we haven't got any room, Hethcote. Then he got a cupboard because I'm married with a baby. So he wrote this play in a cupboard. And he wrote it in ACDC, it was called. And he wrote it into architectural folders, which are nearly as big as a kitchen countertop. So he said, uh, how long do you think that play will run, Henry? I said, well, in this present form, it will run for 90 hours. Is that too long, he said. <laughs> I think a little bit, I said, for most theatres. So then uh, he cut it, and he cut it down to two and a half, and, and, uh, or two and a quarter, and I was in it. And I, it's just one of the most excellent plays. I wish they'd revive it. Won the Evening Standard Award that year. Uh, ACDC, Hethcote Williams. He's a marvellous poet as well. And he wrote wonderful, best-selling books. One of the longest poems, narrative poems of the English language was Whale Nation. I have it. I have it. It's marvellous. Marvellous, isn't it? And he's still writing away. He lives in Oxford. Just, just absolutely terrific, you know, the, um, some, some of the writing uh, he, he does. He still does. Well, and I'm talking to you in in Canada. So you you, you um, with characteristic generosity, you you you've sort of you're passing the torch on by by lending your your talents to um, to teaching others. So what what inspired the move and in terms of not only um, moving to um, away from well, not totally away from performance, but to to, to teaching, but also geographically to Canada. The thing was, I got offered a job there to just go and uh, to take part in a festival and go and direct a play at Edmonton at the university. And then I liked it so much, they wrote back and said, well, I had to come and teach there for a year. So I said, all right. But at the time, my wife was working pretty intensively at the National Theatre in London. And she... Uh, and I had a little... Uh, most enjoyable television series called Words and Pictures, where we, we taught young children to read. That was, had run for about three years, you see, and so forth. And uh, she said, come on, let's give it all up and go to Canada. We ought to change what we do every seven years. So she gave up her very good job at the National. I gave up my television, and we went to Canada, and I became a university teacher. I went from Edmonton to where I am now, not teaching anymore because I had to. Re we used to have to retire here in Saskatoon, in Saskatchewan, in the prairies in Canada. And now you don't have to retire in '67. I had to retire in 1997. Uh, um, and uh, I took up university teaching, and it was the most wonderful fun teaching young Canadians. They're so enthusiastic, wonderful actors, you see. And they, in the prairies, they cut off from the huge numbers of theatres that are available in London and in England in general. And they were they are wonderful actors. And the Canadians, of course, are wonderful people. Saskatoon is the most gorgeous town in the world. They're, it's the most generous and unpretentious city. And you'll find Canadians generally like that. Generous and unpretentious. And uh, it's a marvellous country. And all the young people in the world should emigrate there tomorrow. I will let you go. You've been so generous with time. I have um, 
to, uh, the final two questions, which always... Yes. Um, the, the first one is, um, what is your charity uh, that you would like the listeners to donate to? Well, you see, um, there's a particular Ford Hall Farm, F-O-R-D-H-A-L-L, uh, Ford Hall Farm, is a kind of experimental organic farm and I believe it's in Gloucestershire, I could be wrong, but I could easily find it on the internet. That would be a terrific charity, you know. But the other charity, if that can't be found, is one of the great um, sight-giving charities, like uh, the anti-blindness charities that exist. You know, the, there is a, there's a Christian uh, mission against blindness, and there are other anti-blindness charities and i i'd love them to receive money well i will can't find yes and i hope some of the things i said were were satisfactory Uh, more than it was absolutely fascinating and this i mean this (laughs) these these podcasts cover um so much more than doctor who but they were originally conceived with uh with doctor who in mind so what is your message to the doctor who fans out there who are still watching and i know very much enjoying your performance Keep up the good work. I mean, it's um, it's memory. Once we lose our folk memories, like our memories of Doctor Who, then we lose a large slice of our contemporary culture. So good luck to you, because I love it too. Well, Henry Wolfe, thank you very much indeed. Okay, thank you so much for calling. My pleasure. Oh, I adored that. And what he didn't tell me was that he'd got bags packed in the corridor because he was he was waiting for a plane uh, and was going to uh, fly to the UK, where I had the good fortune um, to meet Mr. Wolf and have a chat with him. Mr. Wolf's charity uh, is Fort Hall Organic Farm. Easy to find online, as it happens. Fort Hall Farm, all one word. Forthallfarm.com and you can donate there. I think one of the interesting... Uh, things about who's around is the different charities that one might not have heard of that uh, throw themselves up so have a look at that or a blindness charity he also mentioned are important to him so uh, any of those as well up to you or not whichever uh, mr wolf is 85 years old my next interviewee has uh, has a few years on that actually um so that's uh, for the next time uh, until then goodbye yes oh he was fun. we had a great time but as I say, it was only in the dressing rooms. Yeah. You know, when you're getting made up. But it was nothing but laughter. Terrific. I mean, especially with Lenny as a director. You know, it, it, truly, I mean, it's great. It's been an hour in getting made up or whatever. It's fantastic. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Are you listening? We've been quiet for a while. I bet you thought we'd gone away. Or maybe you just hoped that was the case. But we were just biding our time, plotting, waiting for an opportunity. And now... 
Now we're back in business. The Federation won't know what's hit it. Blake 7, The Liberator Chronicles, Volume 12. <laughs>